The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. Each episode, we look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. I doubt that there is a person in the world who would disagree that running a business is stressful. I mean, you could be the world's most chill person, but a few months into managing your own venture, I am willing to bet you might be losing some sleep. It's part of the package. I think when you run your own shop, no matter how small or how big it is. I mean, I have heard the same fears and anxieties spoken by the founders of Spanx and JetBlue, giant companies, for example, as I've heard from friends who run really small consulting firms or catering companies or small nonprofits. Can I make payroll? Is this all going to fall apart like a house of cards? Are my competitors catching up to me? Am I the right person to be leading this venture? But I think the difference between those who make it work and those who fail is resilience, which is itself a form of courage and strength. So today we're going to discuss how to build your resilience muscles with Cheryl Conti. Cheryl is the award-winning CEO and co-founder of the firm Do Big Things, and before that she was CEO of Fission Strategy. She's also co-founder of the social marketing software Attentively, which was the first tech startup with a black female founder in history to be acquired by a NASDAQ-traded company. Before all that, Conti co-founded Jack and Jill Politics, where she wrote as Jill Tubman on the leading black audience-targeted blog during the 2008 and 2012 election cycles with her co-founder Baratunde Thurston, who was Jack. We'll talk about that a little bit, too. We met um, in a in a very different era, I think, of both of our lives <laughs> in <laughs> politics in the early 2000s. But I want to talk for a minute about what it was like for you to be a, an online personality. I think it's really related to the topic of resilience. <laughs> um, I knew you in, I think, 2004, 2005, 2006, and I knew your blog, but I didn't know you were your blog. And I'm curious how being an anonymous but quite famous blogger helped you become an entrepreneur looking back. Like, did it inform your decision to say, you know what, I can be an entrepreneur because I've gone through this crazy journey online? That's a really good question, Maura. I would say that a few things happened. Writing under a pseudonym or a nom de guerre and having that really explode in a way that none of us could have imagined uh, and most Black people who were talking about politics, you know, of that era, right, that like 2006 or 2008 were writing under pseudonym just because no one had, you know, no one had ever been that outspoken on the internet in the way that we were doing. And America has a, a tendency to shoot at uh, or hang outspoken Black people. So, <laughs> you know, it seemed like a, 
a good idea at the time, you know, but as it became more famous, you know, I started to get the sense that, look, I'm going to get outed at some point, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and, and I can either, um, you know, take control of this or let it happen to me. I mean, having that talk about anxiety, you know, having this basically hidden, you know, Batman, Catwoman role, you know, in which I was being <laughs> loud and taking on the Congressional Black Caucus and the NAACP, you know, on <laughs> on the internet. And then by day, you know, was Mora's like black friend, like, yeah, you know, like that was, that was a little stressful, right? Well, but not stressful. only that, you were working on K Street at the time, right? You were like working in the yeah. establishment of Washington, D.C., Absolutely. As I was taking on the establishment uh-huh. by night. So yeah, that was stressful. And I, w- I will definitely say it it did create in me a lot of resilience um, in terms of, you know, we would get attacked, we would get hacked, you know, it was uh, stressful at times, you know, taking on being an individual and taking on these big uh, entities, powerful entities with a community, you mm-hmm. know, behind us. But what I will say is that, you know, being you know, being that anonymous um, blogger and then coming forward and, and blogging, you know, as myself, it gave me a lot of credibility, mm. right? In, in, you know, among prospective clients in that, look, I'm now one of the OG influencers online and you know how important, you know, internet influencers are. And, you know, I know intimately just how the internet has changed the power mapping among individuals versus organizations. And it provided me with a platform. So you talk a lot about resiliency in the context of entrepreneurship. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? How is an entrepreneur resilient in a way that someone who may not run their own business isn't or doesn't need to be? Well, you absolutely have to be resilient, especially if you're running a, a tech startup. I mean, I, you know, my book, Mechanical Bull, how you can achieve startup success, like the, you know, part of the reason I named it mechanical bull is because it's a wild ride. And, you know, you're, you know, that you're really tested in terms of like, how long can you, you know, stay on that buck and bronco that is your business. And look, in America, 90 to 95% of startups fail in their first year. And of those who make it 10% of those five to 10% of those will fail in their third year. Yeah. So, you know, you, 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 whether you like it or not, you're going to have to figure out how to be resilient as your business does or does not succeed. And, and then what do you do next? And how, what, how do you tell the story about what was successful and, you know, where things, where things went awry, even if it wasn't your fault? You know, there are lots of reasons why a business, you know, might not survive its third year that have nothing to do with the hard work and the ambition and the great ideas and the dynamism of its founders. Right. And that is true. Can you give me a specific example of a really resilient moment in your career as a now veteran startup entrepreneur? Oh, boy. Well, I will say, you know, we had a client in the way back that we just hadn't quite properly vetted. Um, And as it turned out, you know, we were starting to get feedback of like, hey, if this is your client, you should know more about these people. And it turned out their motives for working with a group like us were were disingenuous. We were persuaded of that. And at the same time, we took a lot of heat, you know, from that professional community. But how we decided to approach it was just to stay true to our mission and say, look, we made a mistake. You know, you should know that our values haven't changed. We're going to show that. We're we're not going to talk about it. We're going to show you. So you tell that now, and it sounds like, you know, you had a plan, you executed. But I can imagine 
that there was anxiety there. I, I know if it was me and that happened, I would think, oh my gosh, that's it. I'm done. The company's done. We're going down. Like, did you have those feelings of anxiety and catastrophe at the time? Yes, girl. I was like, we are in really big trouble. You know, and, and, you know, I tell people now, like, look, you know, your reputation, like, there is nothing more precious than your reputation and your network. And, you know, I wouldn't have been able to launch my businesses without uh, my network would not have been able to keep them without that network. Because look, you know, what also happened was while we may have lost a few clients, there were people who stepped forward who heard us talk about, you know, the fact that look, you know, we may have made a mistake here, but here's who we are. And here's who we're going to continue to be and what we want to do and who we want to work with, who came, Mm -hmm. you know, and said, we believe in you, and we're going to support you. We know this is probably that you could probably use this work, you know, and, and we're here for you. So uh, you know, there, you know, if you have that supportive network and community and, and you are that kind of person, like I know you are, Bora, where you're helping other people along the way, when you need help, you're going to find that come back to you, you know, 10x. Yeah. And, and you actually talk a lot about resilient communities. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about why you've adopted the term cognitive resilience. I actually found this when I was researching you. And you said, cognitive resilience is a clinical term used to describe the body's ability to buffer itself from external trauma. Why is that an important term, not just in your life and your work, but in your work as an organizer, as a progressive? Well, you know, I actually got that from a uh, some folks who work in philosophy mm. and in just acad- academia. You know, that's an academic Uh, concept, cognitive resilience. I think that we absolutely, as Americans right now, and and even globally are in, you know, we're facing very difficult times, even if things were going smoothly, you know, we're going, we're, we're in a very volatile time with a lot of, you know, technical changes in innovation that are just changing how we work and how we live and how we communicate and connect with our, our neighbors. So, you know, having that cognitive resilience of like, okay, I'm intaking this information, I'm finding ways to process it. And, you know, I'm, I'm finding ways to be creative, mm-hmm. right, is, is really important. But protect um, myself from it. There's got to be a level of protecting myself from its damaging effects as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I have things that I do to keep myself more resilient that I've tried to, to coach my team on as well. You know, and those include just relaxing. Okay, like part of cognitive what? resilience. How? What? And I think, you know, look, I come from an African-American culture. And, you know, I think that the, you know, other subcultures in America often are like, you know, we often get accused of being lazy, right? Which is the opposite. Like so much of America was built by mm-hmm. Black people. Okay, yes. so like including the Capitol building and the White House. So we're not lazy, but I would say that we, part of how we as a culture develop cognitive resilience is to just try to stay relaxed, see the humor in a situation, like get your work done, but like your work doesn't define you, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And especially like if you're a slave, right? Like (laughs) you had better believe that your work doesn't define you, right? Um, And so- there's a lot to learn there. I think just like, can you, can you relax into this moment Mm -hmm. and accept what's happening and breathe and, you know, find, find the best, do your best and find your best in it. Uh, Can you keep things in perspective in general and find people, you know, I have an executive coach and have for some time and have 
we have had executive coaches for some of our execs, you know, just of like, hey, you know, do you need to talk to somebody externally here yes. to think big, right, about, you know, wh- where you want to go next with your careers or how do you improve yourself, right, and, and facing a challenge that's in front of you. So definitely a big believer in, in executive coaching. And then wellness, look, meditating, Mm-hmm. Right. Like it and meditating, like it's not it. Sure. It might be a little bit of California boo boo. I'm here in Silicon Valley. OK, that's real. But you know what? Meditation is just hacking your brain. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, just, it's literally just so if you see it that way of like, I need to hack my brain so that I can cultivate more cognitive resilience, like things, things pass, things happen in front of me or pass through me. I am not them. They are not me. Right. I can I can Tai Chi just let that ish go, right? Like that takes practice. How do you as a leader of a startup with so many sort of internal and external pressures reinforce that? Because it's we all know that we should meditate and do yoga. Like how does a leader actually make that part of her her and her team's day? You just do it. I mean, look, I schedule things, mm-hmm. you know, I schedule meditation right? It's part of my calendar. Like if you're like me and you are living and dying by your calendar, it's like, okay, this is the, this is the half an hour where I meditate. Right. Right. Or like I'm starting my day. Yeah. This is like, this is not the time, you know, and I tell people on Slack, like, Hey, I'm now going to meditate. Like, you know, by a lot of people keep meditation, you know, I was actually just at, um, we were both at, uh, the NPR, um, how I built this summit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, you know, asked, you know, a room full of startup founders, and investors, and, um, you know, other executives, like, how many of you meditate? You know what, Maura, almost all of them raised their hand. And yet, I'm willing to bet, yes, you know, meditation is one of those, like, secrets of success, okay, in this, you know, in this world, okay, so if you're listening, and you don't have meditation practice, let me tell you, like, you are not competitive, okay, because your competitor is meditating like a, you know, like a champ. (laughs) Wait, I I think that's not the point of to make meditation competitive is like, not the point, Cheryl. I'm just saying that like, if that's the way if that's how I'm going to get you there, okay, just consider that your competitor probably has a, a, an active meditation practice. But I, you know, what I challenge them in the room and what I'm challenging you who are listening is like, don't make meditation your dirty little secret. Yeah. Okay. If you are meditating and you know that it is making you more effective as a human being and as a leader and as an executive, you, it is incumbent upon you to model openly yeah. with your, because that's how we normalize it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I want to talk about another side of this coin because I think, especially for women in business and, and for people of color, for people who don't fit the, quote, dominant majority, there is a relationship between anger and anxiety, right? I know often as a woman, and I've been told this by my therapist, what I experience as anxiety is really anger that I'm scared to feel. Wow, that's deep. Well, no, then that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the way I think of it, Mora, I, I think of anxiety as like the anticipation and the inner preparation for something bad or disappointing to happen, mm -hmm. right? Which is, which creates a lot of stress, right? If you're, for example, if you're a person of color and you're driving around and you see a police officer like that involuntarily is going to create sort of like anxiety because yes. you, you're like, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen next. So that's a different, that's anxiety, mm. but right. The anger of that is like, why should I have to feel that way? Exactly. Right. Like, why should I have to be afraid of the people who are supposed to be protecting me? And I feel like anger is the knowledge that something bad has happened, mm. right. And dealing with that anger, you know, at de dealing with the aftermath and the ramifications of like someone I know has been arrested by the cops, right? Like it's happened, yeah. you know, and I have a lot of feelings about that. I'm scared. I'm angry. Right. Like, you know, I, you know, something, something bad has happened. So, you know, I do think you're right that I think there's, you know, there is a relationship between anxiety and anger. And I think, you know, there, you know, at least for me, I am sometimes I feel angry that I have to be anxious. Like I'm, I'm angry that I have to worry about whether or not someone is going to discriminate against me in this yeah. moment. What do you tell, I mean, you have a team of, you have a very intentionally diverse team at Do Big Things. What do you tell them about having all these big feelings and working through them while still, you know, being productive and getting their work done and being present mentally at work? It's, it's hard, right? It's not easy. And look, you know, just for those who are uninitiated, Do Big Things is a digital agency. We specialize in a new narrative and new tech for the new era in which we're all we all sense we're living in, uh, for causes and campaigns. Mm -hmm. So we work with organizations like Every Town for Gun Safety. Uh, we've worked with Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, uh, NAACP, you know, all kinds of different uh, types of organizations, um, plus political campaigns. We're working with uh, great um, companies like Google and Etsy, NBC Universal. On stressful stuff, like our project with NBC Universal is called Erase the Hate, uh, and it's some on air, but mostly on their online properties. You know, trying to lead a conversation and manage a conversation online about tolerance. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you're the community manager, the online community manager for that, you know, <laughs> you're seeing stuff. Okay, you're seeing some not necessarily tolerant 
stuff and that's stressful. This isn't just selling soap, right? Yeah. I mean, this yeah. is this is stuff that could, could be really meaningful to people's lives. And sure, it's very stressful. And what I what I try to lead is the conversation of let's be honest about how we feel, hmm. right? Like, you know, are is this creating feelings for you? Do you need to take a break? Like, are you under stress? Do you need help? Right? Like keeping that bottled in and, and creating that safe structure where, you know, we at Do Big Things are a team. If there's something going on, you may not feel able to talk about this in this open environment, mm-hmm. but you should find someone to talk about this with whether it's internally or externally, because I know something just happened out there in the world that impacts how you feel about the work that we're doing, period. So what what can an aspiring entrepreneur listening today, what is the number one thing they should do to start building resiliency muscles, right? They're, they're, they've got their idea, they're early in their journey, and they are nervous and anxious and all the what ifs. Can, can, can you help practice resiliency? Yes, I think you can help practice resiliency. Here's what I would say is like, look, anxiety is important to listen to. You know, when I get nervous about something, you know, instead of reacting to that nervous and having it create like a a, a vicious cycle, you know, say, oh, okay, I noticed that this is making me anxious. This is making me a little nervous. There's something for me to pay attention to, like see it as information and take a step to the side of it and say, okay, this is interesting information. I should ask some more questions or I should get, you know, I should get a little more understanding before I move forward. Then the other thing I would say is trust yourself. Sometimes anxiety is you second guessing yourself or like comparing to other people or, you know, just like you're, you're reading the tea leaves you know, in the most skewed way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, neuroscience tells us now that our, we make decisions not from our frontal cortex, not from the, you know, the logical part of our brain, but from an older emotional part of our brain. And how that, how that actually, that mechanism actually works is that that part of your brain, you know, which is closer to some of the animal brain, the middle of your brain, you, it takes in literally millions of inputs, right? So it's all always out there scanning, it takes in millions of inputs, and then it cranks it through a black box, makes some calculations. And the output of that is a gut feeling. It's an instinct, it's an inner knowing, right? It's your intuition. Mm. That is the smartest part of your brain trying to communicate to you. So if you're, you know, we have been taught so much that you should ignore that your intuition is like some crazy female superstitious stuff like no, okay, that's old. That is old information. Okay, the new science tells it that that is the smartest part of you. And so if you really can trust yourself, meditation helps with this, like really start to listen internally to what you you already know. Okay, the answers are already in you because your brain has been working behind the scenes to help you figure this out. If you can cut through, learn to cut through the noise of anxiety or use it as a like, oh, ping, there's something for me to pay attention to. What do I already know? How do I sink back into myself that the answer is already there of what to do? You know what to do. Cheryl Conti, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. An award-winning bilingual journalist, spokesperson, TV personality, and internationally recognized parenting author, 
Our guest, Jeanette Kaplun, has over 20 years of experience on TV, radio, and the internet. In 1999, she co-founded Toto Bebe, where she was chief content officer for 13 years. She also co-hosted two Emmy-nominated Spanish-language television shows on parenting for Univision and for Telemundo. Now, Jeanette is CEO of Hispana Global, which she launched in 2012, and it's a bilingual platform for Hispanic women where she shares tips about life, parenting, technology, travel. She uh, has a lot of good advice on something that I've frankly avoided talking about this season, although I'm really feeling it today, which is parenting guilt as an ambitious achiever who has anxiety around do they spend enough time with their children. Uh, So we dive into that and we talk about the illusion of control when you are running a business. So when did you when did you first realize I have anxiety and I bring it to work? Oh, um, I actually did not realize for the longest time that I had anxiety. I thought as a child and as a teen that I had butterflies in my stomach, that I used to get very nervous uh, or sometimes I would get stomach aches. And I thought that was actually normal. Mm. And when I was in my early 20s was when I really realized for the first time that that was not normal, that a lot of people have it, but it's not supposed to be there. <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of weird to understand as a, a teen and then a young woman that so many things that you thought on a day-to-day basis were kind of part of you, are part of you, but that there's different ways of dealing with that and that it has a name. So you say butterflies in your stomach. Like what tell us what that really felt like because that that's kind of a sweet name for something that may not have been sweet. Well, it's kind of an elegant way of saying sometimes I would get stomach cramps, I would get nausea. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, while we can really go into a lot of details. <laughs> if I had a really big test, I would get very very anxious. I would perform really well until of course, if you are not handling it well, sometimes you become paralyzed by anxiety. And and that's when the stomach cramps became really bad. Mm-hmm. And I even had to run to the bathroom when I was taking one of the standardized tests in my junior year. So that was not fun because I was not allowed back into the testing room. Oh, my gosh. Of course. <laughs> yeah. They thought you probably <laughs> cheated or something, right? Yeah, but there were no cell phones back then. Um, so f- I want to fast forward um, to the moment when you were in your 20s, I think, when you co-founded a media company, <laughs> um, <laughs> took on investors, the whole nine. Was this something that was a part of your vision as you sort of emerged into a, a professional? Did you say, you know, I want to help start a media company. I want to be this media mogul. Was that all part of your plan? If I'm really honest with you, no. (laughs) I was an accidental entrepreneur the first time. I really thought that I was helping out my husband at the time when we were like creating this company. I thought I was really helping him until he raised enough capital Hmm. 
to be able to hire somebody else. But I fell in love with online content creation and the internet and community building. So that's when I realized, hey, this can really be built. This is something that I can be really active in. And I love it. Mm-hmm. Because I always thought as a journalist, I studied journalism in, in college, I really thought that I would always be employed by somebody else. I, my aspiration was being editor-in-chief or director of news, but I never envisioned myself as creating a media company from the ground up. And I would imagine when you were starting the company that you 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 both you felt free, right? You're you're doing your own thing. You're building this company. Was there a transition or a size that it got to from that where you went from feeling free to feeling and in control to feeling oh my gosh now I'm losing control because I don't know what I'm doing? Like talk us through the journey of control in the business because I know that's a lot of that's a motivating factor for a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, when you create a business, yes, you have the illusion of control. So anything that happens is your responsibility, Mm. either good or bad, but at least you're controlling it. But with each round of investment, and this is something that I feel is not discussed enough, you start losing controls. You get diluted and other people come on board. They might not have the same vision. They might not have the same goals or share your mission. And that becomes very difficult for an entrepreneur to know when to let go and what's normal and what's not, because you're not going to be able to grow if you are overseeing everything and you are micromanaging everybody. As part of growth, you need to learn to delegate. But the problem with losing control is when you are partnering up with people that might not share that vision or Investors sometimes change and that can, sorry, it's just, it's very difficult for me to articulate in words that sensation of not being able to share that vision anymore. And once you've created a company and you have different visions of what you're doing and why you're doing it, that I think is a moment in which you might feel that things have gotten out of control and you might want to retake control, but maybe it's not possible anymore. Did that happen to you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's why I have such a hard time articulating it, because mm-hmm. I, in many ways, even though it's been seven years, I'm still processing that shift and that moment in which I realized that I needed to take a different direction mm-hmm. and that I needed to close a chapter in my life to start another one and to write actually another book in my life. How did your anxiety come into play during the phases of starting a business, building it, and then as you described, sort of realizing, oh dear, this I have to leave, I have to start a new chapter? Well, anxiety can play a positive role and a negative role. So mm-hmm. when you're building a company, it gives you adrenaline, right? Mm-hmm. That anxiety makes you hyper alert. It makes you think of all the little details, everything that could go wrong. So that is actually really good because that way you can plan for different scenarios. The problem with anxiety is that it's associated so closely with imposter syndrome and you feel that you don't know anything that you're doing and you start doubting yourself. And if you start asking too many people for advice, then you get very confused and you can 
actually become very scattered. And that's never good when you're building a business. You need to be hyper-focused. You need to know why you're doing things and you need to trust your vision. And sometimes when you're dealing with anxiety, the problem is that you start second-guessing every single step that you're taking and that can paralyze you. And the reality is that as an entrepreneur, the worst thing that can happen to you is to stop moving. You always need to be moving. Either you're falling and then you get up mm -hmm. and then you learn from that mistake, but you keep moving and you keep moving towards that goal that you have. And if you become paralyzed by anxiety, by fear, by fear of failure, you cannot grow that way and you won't be able to grow your business. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in which you start spiraling into a never ending cycle of, Oh, I knew I couldn't do this. Oh my goodness. This is failing. What am I going to do? What's the worst thing that can happen? Oh, it's happening. And, and it's horrible. And if you don't take care of your health and that includes mental health and physical health, then it becomes very easy to lose control of your company of your, your, what you're building and to feel like a failure in many ways as a person and to your family as well, if you have one. You know, you, you just brought something up that, that no one's ever brought up actually to on the show, certainly, and I love it. And I'd love to ask your advice, which is that sense of, and I think a lot of us can relate to it when, you know, and you don't necessarily even have to be an entrepreneur, you know, you've built something, you're, you're driving something, whether it's a project or your company, and the imposter syndrome sort of sneaks in, and the doubt sneaks in, and you get all that advice, and you sort of lose your way a little bit. And how, do you have any advice for sort of recentering and checking back in with your gut, your mother wit, I always call it, your instinct? Well, there's different things that are helping me deal with those sensations, right? The first thing is that I've learned to recognize the symptoms of when anxiety is rearing its ugly head and trying to gain control over my mind and whatever I'm feeling at the moment. So that's the first thing that you need to understand how you work, how your mind works. So that way, when anxiety is really getting out of hand, you talk yourself down. And breathing exercises help me tremendously, taking a pause, resetting, and even writing down what I'm feeling, what I need to do, and establishing priorities. Because the problem is that it's very easy to become overwhelmed. There's so many Things, so many responsibilities that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, on an hourly basis, on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, that it's so easy to lose track of what's really important. If you have 100 priorities every single day, trust me, that means that you have a problem because not everything can be urgent. Not everything can be an emergency. That's right. And, and you know, something interesting also is I think that once you, you start to find success, a lot of people in your life have a lot of opinions. I mean, this is so true for me. You know, the, the more success you have, the more imposter syndrome actually might creep in, which feels counterintuitive. But I, I think that can be true for some of us. And then you solicit advice and you start to doubt yourself while you're actually becoming more successful. And so it's really hard to sort of take a step back and say, wait a minute, I got myself here in the first place. I do know what to do. The more you know, the less you know, right? <laughs> because you're more aware of everything that you're lacking. So imposter syndrome can 
totally, totally overtake over all your other emotions. And you feel that, oh my goodness, everybody's going to realize that I have absolutely no idea about what I'm doing. So I'm going to trust other people who seem to be the experts, right? But there's a reason why you've achieved what you've achieved. There's a reason why you're doing and connecting with people in a way that others are not. So you have to remember that. Even if it's just reading one comment from a customer, a client, a community member, or in my case, sometimes a reader, and going back to what you know, what you have done, and the effect that you're having on other people might help you center yourself and realize, you know what, I need to go with my gut. That's right. Um, I want to talk about your shift because you went from an uncomfortable period exiting out of your first successful business to, I think, a much more intentional plan for your second business. Talk us through what it felt like when you exited Toto Bebe and how you sort of picked up pieces and realized that maybe a different kind of business was the right step next. Well, walking away from Toto Bebe was extremely difficult for me, but I realized what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do with Hispana Global, which is the company that I, I founded in 2012 was build something that I could control, mm. that it could help others, but I could control. So I designed the logo myself. I programmed everything into WordPress. I designed my blog. I started creating all the social media handles, designed the style manual, interviewed different freelancers. And that way I was able to not only understand every step of the process, but also feel that I could control the company that I was building. And I really felt the need to do that because I, I was not feeling that at the end of my tenure at my previous company. So for me, it was taking back my story, taking back my voice, taking back my power and figuring out how to use it in a positive way and also make a living out of it and that's how I built Hispana Global, which I absolutely love. But I kept it small on purpose. My goal has never been to achieve multimedia success in 10 different languages and to sell it to one of the big conglomerates. That's not my exit strategy. I wanted to build a company that I loved and that the people who would come on board to work with me would also believe in that vision. Along the way, have you had people, even from your past business life, coming and saying, come on, Jeanette, let's scale this. Let's do this. And is it ever <laughs> tempting? <laughs> it's very tempting. I, I'm not going to lie. Of course, you could scale much more, maybe help even more people, right, by being a bigger company. And that's when it becomes very sexy to try to lose my focus and say, you know what? Let's grow it. Let's sell. And then I, I remember... <laughs> what I felt seven years ago and why I built this company and why I designed it. I created it very purposefully in, in, in a way that I could manage it, it and also be present for my kids. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know what? It's very tempting. Let's talk in five more years. Now is not the moment. Well, I think you and I both share a sort of tension, right? In that we are 
we are mothers, you know, first, but we are also serious professionals. We also have our hands in lots of different creative pots and we write and we travel. Um, <laughs> do, do you have, do you, I mean, I, I'm sure you have those moments. I actually have to admit that I, I, I was at the airport yesterday and um, realized that I had forgotten to buy a ticket um, <laughs> because I fly so <laughs> That could totally happen to me. <laughs> but, you know, the the sort of managing it all and keeping control, it gets you. <laughs> gets you. Yes. And sometimes balls fall to the floor. It's like you're trying to keep all the balls up in the air, but one is going to fall. You know, I, I'm going to ask you a question that I, I haven't addressed all season, but I think with, with you and I, we can address it, which is, you know, for me... Um, a lot of my sort of guilt around not being there as much for my kids sometimes can really make me anxious, you know, so I'll be on a trip and I will think of something I'm missing or I'll get a call from school or my husband will tell me something, you know, rough that happened at school and it will send me into waves of anxiety. And I think that that anxiety might be rooted in guilt and mom guilt. Um, how do you, does this happen to you? How do you handle it? Do you have any, any words? It's happened to me, but I realized that guilt is useless. It's one of those emotions that really do not do not help with anything in your life. So I found a way around it. I found that if I could make peace with doing my best and trying my best, then I needed to let go of the guilt. I, I can't feel guilty for doing my best. I can feel guilty when I'm not trying my best. So if I'm trying my best to be as present as I can be with the resources that I have, with the time that I have on my hands, then you know what? That's okay. It means that sometimes I will miss out on important things. I actually, and, and I haven't told this to you before, I, I missed my son's first steps because I was working. Mm -hmm. I was taping a show. Me so too. I, I, I missed that, right? And I was I was in tears once I I realized that and it was my first child. So it, it was pretty pretty intense that moment. I felt extremely guilty about it. But you know what? I, I was making a living. I I was working hard for what I dreamed about and it was fine. Once I came back home, I saw him taking another few steps. They weren't the <laughs> first ones, but you are going to be missing on a few things, but the reality is that we are not going to be there for our kids 24-7. Our goal as parents is to prepare them to actually leave us, to be independent of us. So there's so much that our children are learning by us working outside of the home that I think we also need to be very very cognizant of that, that it's not all bad. We need to take a break from the narrative of all these responsibilities and the effect that taking on these responsibilities outside of the home, what effect it's causing on our kids. I think we need to, to really understand that we are doing the best that we can. Sometimes we'll, we'll achieve what we need to achieve. Other times we'll fail and we'll learn to do better the next time. <sighs> Deep breaths. I told you, breathing exercises work. Oh Well, my dear Jeanette Kaplun, thank you so much. Thank you for having me here. 
That's it for this week's show. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe and submit a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And if you have an idea for the show or you want to tell us your story, drop me a note at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or you can tweet me at Mora A.M. That's M-O-R-R-A-A-M. Special thanks to the team at Harvard Business Review, my producer Mary Dew, the team at Podcast Garage, and all of our guests who are telling us their stories from the heart. From the HBR Presents Network, I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever.